Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Weekly Roundup. Every week, we at Partners for Access discuss the major news developments impacting the rare disease and cell and gene therapy industry and what they mean for you. Hello, I'm Aparna Krishnan and on this Rare Disease Week, we have a guest speaker, Annie Kennedy. Annie is Head of Policy and Advocacy at Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases based in Washington, D.C. Every Life is a non-profit organization uh, which focuses on advancing therapy development and uh, public policy in, in the U.S. Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So, Annie, tell us a little bit more about Every Life. I do see the description in your website that uh, it says specifically, we do not speak for patients. Then who do you speak for? So, that's a great question. So, I like to use the analogy that we really, as an organization, work to identify the spaces and places where patient voices should be represented, and we work to make space at the table and then bring the patients in to speak for themselves. So we, as an organization, are dedicated to advancing the development of treatments, diagnostic opportunities, and access to approved therapies for rare disease patients. But I think that distinction is important that we are not speaking on behalf of the patients, that we work with patient groups to help educate them, empower them, reflect policies um, that are of importance to the patient community so that the patient community can be speaking on behalf of themselves. So give me an example of how a patient group would engage with uh, Every Life. Sure. So one of our key programs is a program that we call the Community Congress Program, where we bring um, our patient group partners actually together with industry partners and other stakeholders, other coalition partners who are a part of the biomedical ecosystem to really identify policy priorities. And we bring them together under those um, different policy priority areas, treatments, diagnostics, access, to identify where the challenges and opportunities are within each of those spaces and together um, work together to develop pro policy priorities that we then move forward. So um, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but one of the areas that really grew out of that was really a need to better understand what the cost of living with a rare disease was. And so many of the discussions we had was around really a lot of what was missing from the discussions around drug pricing was real data around um, not just what the direct cost, which is what we see in health utility data of living with rare disease was, but what were the absorbed costs that patients um, incur in the out-of-pocket costs for living with rare diseases. So those discussions really led to the fact that we are now leading a burden of rare disease study um, in rare diseases. And so that's a perfect example of the communities coming together to really understand what are the needs to add to the policy discussions so we can ensure that there are real data considerations being brought forward. Um, and then the community together can then ensure that policymakers have that information when um, we're then informing policy considerations. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say are the main challenges of your job at the moment? 
<laughs> that there's like many of us, there's just so much to get done. I think mm-hmm. we are at a moment um, of great opportunity. I think there um, is a lo- so much innovation happening in the rare disease space right now, and it's a really exciting time in therapy development. But I think we represent um, in rare diseases more than 30 million Americans that are diagnosed with rare diseases. That said, though, 93% of our community, which is about 7,000 rare diseases, have no FDA-approved therapies. Um, Of those that do have approved therapies, the access environment that those therapies are moving into is very complex, very complicated, and ever-changing. And so the challenges before us are different depending on whether or not you're a patient community with a more common rare disease or a very rare rare disease. Within our, um, even the more common rare diseases, we're learning about mutation specificity, as you know, in those diseases. So Mm -hmm. we're learning new things and the importance of um, understanding the genetics of the disease and how different therapies will benefit different subsets of the population. Mm -hmm. And so the more we know, the more we learn we need to know And I think the challenges for organizations like ours are um, ever-expanding. And so I think when you ask what the biggest challenge for us as an organization is, is to really fully understand what the rare disease community is grappling with and then to ensure that we're reflecting that to our partners and our stakeholders, which include payers and regulators and innovators and developers, so that we can ensure that we are trying to meet those needs together. Wow, that's that's a lot of stakeholders you're talking to every day. Um, but tell us, you guys started out with uh, looking at diagnostics and then therapy development. But I understand that you have now added a third pillar to your efforts, which is access. Uh, a little bit of it that you alluded to before. What was the thinking behind bringing access uh, into the fold? Why did you think that was important now? And Um, I think one of the things that would be important is to um, back up and just make sure that um, everyone first understands, and I'm sure a lot of um, your listeners are among those who over the last few decades have been among the patient communities that have increasingly become critical partners and innovators within the therapy development ecosystem. And so there are countless of examples of um, therapies and robust disease spaces that have yielded yielded directly the efforts of um, individual patients, families, patient organizations, and have actually developed um, animal models, natural history studies, they've built registries, um, developed guidance, worked with Congress to create federal research funding and regulatory pathways. Um, We've seen a lot of that through 21st Century Cures legislation here in the U.S. and um, the PDUFAs. Um, We have patient groups that have worked to validate endpoints and develop care guidelines, and as you referenced already, established newborn screening programs and diagnostic models. Um, But for so long, I think many of our patient groups and many of the groups I've worked with included um, really focused on three distinct developmental hurdles. We focused on preclinical, clinical, and regulatory approval, and there was an assumption that in rare disease, if a product met uh, regulatory rigor of efficacy and safety, that there would be access, um, Mm. that that would be afforded to patients with rare unmet um, conditions. Um, Mm. And 
I think um, about a year ago, I have a friend who has a child who has a rare genetic disease, and I think she said it best to me. She said, um, I used to think that there was nothing more heartbreaking than having your child be diagnosed with an incurable fatal disease, but I was wrong. I recently learned that there's something much worse. I realized that having your child be diagnosed with a uh, devastating fatal disease for which a treatment exists, but you've been denied access to that treatment is worse. And that's the situation that we're seeing um, very frequently here in the U.S., and I know it's being seen frequently in the U.K. and in other places. And so what's happening when you ask about as we've expanded into access, is that now just as patients learned the language of regulators and worked as partners and citizen scientists in the therapy development space, we are really now needing to lean into the payer ecosystem and Mm -hmm. learn those languages and better understand the data that can inform decision-making within the payer space and learn how to build that data collection and those policy incentives into um, the therapy development pipeline earlier and not just think about it upon approval, but think about it as we're also building those registries and those endpoints and those outcomes earlier. Um, Because again, it's patient groups that are working with the stakeholders earlier and doing that. Um, So we did um, expand into access earlier this year, last fall, and again, applied that same model that I talked about where we brought all of our partners together, reached out to all the different coalitions working in the space who um, we could think of to come together to understand um, what else was being done in the space. Um, There are many think tanks working in the space. We invited them to come and present. Um, Many of our patient communities are already working in these spaces. Some haven't even thought about it. They have Mm -hmm. therapies that are very nascent in their pipelines, and we believe strongly that that's probably exactly when you should be thinking about access, even though it seems to be so far off on your radar screen. Um, And so we begin to do some priority setting and identify some opportunities where we could be impactful, and that's early stage for us right now, Mm -hmm. Um, but making sure that all the partners are at the table together and that we could, as a group, also be force multipliers for other efforts that are underway. So it was a really long answer to your question, but I think um, the idea of being using the same um, strategy that we've used all along, that the patient community has really transformed the way therapy development is conducted and um, done, and we really in the same way need to be engaging with partners in the payer environment uh, to be ensuring that um, that policy determinations are reflecting the input of patient communities and that if the correct data inputs are not available to inform their decision-making, then we need to make sure that we are engaging with them earlier and providing them with the data considerations they need to inform those decisions. Mm-hmm. So if we move on to orphan drug access under the whole access issue, Uh, One of the key challenges is uh, pricing in the U.S. And there have been several attempts by U.S. governments to look at it, look at policy, but none have been able to to make a big impact. In your opinion, is there any political will to make a difference? Are they considering patients' patients' perspective in this debate at all? 
Yes, I, I mean, I think both. So you have two really important questions. Is there a political will and are they considering patients? And I think in both cases, yes. <clears throat> um, I think it's, as you know, it's a very complex issue. Um, and I think affordability and pricing are definitely issues that are of significant importance to um, policymakers and members of Congress. I think what's very difficult and is that there are um, many issues that need to be considered. We, when we are working with policymakers and when we are working with Congress and when our, um, and next week we'll have about 800 advocates going to the Hill, one of the things that we urge um, policymakers to remember is that, and I referenced this before, that there are millions of Americans living with rare diseases who do not have any access to treatments. And so that as we consider these policies that are moving forward, um, we have to also consider that um, the lack of access is not simply because they're unaffordable. It's not simply just about drug pricing. Um, it's also that there are other considerations that we have to be thinking about. So there's the high cost and high risk of developing life-saving therapies, mm -hmm. and that there have been really important incentives that have been um, provided to innovators to develop treatments in rare diseases, and we have to ensure that those are protected and considered to exist. Um, we also point out that spending growth in rare diseases has been moderate over the last decade, um, despite the higher volume of treatments, and that rare disease treatments um, still represent a very small share of the overall prescription drug spending. Mm. Um, and that in the absence of effective treatments and timely diagnoses, rare disease patients incur significant costs. And as I mentioned before, this is something we're very committed to collecting real data on. But as you, I'm sure, are well aware, that families incur costs around extensive diagnostic odysseys, frequent hospitalizations and emergency room visits, travel mm -hmm. to disease specialists, invasive tests, um, weekly therapies and nursing care, out-of-pocket caregiver expenses. Um, many times a caregiver leaves the workforce in order to provide care. Um, many use off-label treatments that aren't covered by insurance. And so for us, it's really critically important that all of these um, elements and considerations are part of the conversation because we just can't have a very unilateral siloed conversation because for mm -hmm. families, it's not just about the prescription drug cost. It's about the cost of overall care and the overall cost of living with the disease. Mm -hmm. um, so when we are working with Congress, we're really asking them to work towards proposals that will continue to incentivize um, innovation within rare diseases, but also look at the full picture. And we're committed to trying to get data to capture that when they're looking at these um, various models that are being considered. But I do think there's will, mm -hmm. and I do think that they're open to um, listening to proposals and understanding what the patient perspective is in these policy proposals. It is Rare Disease Day on February 28th. What is uh, Every Life's uh, Foundation's plans for that week? So, as you know, there's so much happening right now. And so we, um, every year, we um, facilitate ac access um, to members of Congress and we help 
um, bring members of the community to Washington. Um, and we have a number of events during the week. And so we have a legislative conference where we have a full day where we provide updates on many of the legislative issues and the hot topics that are happening in Washington. We have many of our partners who are helping lead these efforts, um, provide updates on those. We have um, partner organizations that are leading legislative efforts um, come and provide updates on the legislation that they are leading. Um, and then the following day, um, we have um, members of patient advocacy groups go to the Hill and meet with their elected representatives. And this year we have nearly 800 members of the rare disease patient community from all over the United States um, coming to Washington and going to meet with their elected representatives to talk about issues that are of importance to the rare disease community, um, which is an incredibly impactful um, powerful week. Um, as you well know, there is a lot happening here in Congress right now. Yeah. Um, we are going into an election year, and it is so important for members of Congress to be reminded that they work for their constituents and to understand what issues are of importance to their constituents and that rare disease um, matters and that the issues that they are considering around healthcare reform, um, innovation, access to therapies matter to this army of patients and that while you may be an N of four, um, you are a part of this very large community when we come together. And so um, that's what this week is about. It's about coming together to lift our combined voices and change the landscape. And we as the Every Life Foundation are very proud to help convene this powerful forum. Annie, thank you so much for this insightful conversation. Good luck with your plans for the Rare Disease Day. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week. For more news and analysis, do visit our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next week.